Uh, one of the, oftentimes in churches, we talk a lot about spiritual disciplines, spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are typically habits of the Christian life that we, uh, that we do, like Bible reading, like corporate worship, um, to, that we do to, to communicate with the Lord, to spend time with him, to meditate in his word and to abide in Christ. And one of those spiritual disciplines we often talk about is the discipline of prayer. We can think about private prayer, corporate prayer, and, and services. Uh, but let me ask, how's your prayer life? Now, very few Christians I know would probably feel like they would say that they spend an adequate time in prayer. Most all of us would say, well, of course I should spend more time in prayer. And for any of you, who, any of us who know somebody who seems to just have an ongoing conversation with the Lord, those people are just infectious. And I just want to be more and more like them. That, you know, you can't stop, but, you know, you might be in the middle of a conversation and say, let's pray about that. Or, or when they say, hey, I'm going to be praying for you, that you know they're not lying about that statement. One of the most easy lies, the most common lies in the church is to say, hey, I'll pray for you. And then we often don't do it. But for those who pray, I'm just grateful for their ministry and for sometimes even a gift of prayer, faith that they have to take those things before the Lord. But this morning, we're going to talk less about how much we pray. We're going to talk more about what we pray when we pray. Is there anybody in your life that is beyond prayer? Does anyone come to mind that you say, I'd rather not pray for them? Now you might think, that's a ridiculous question, Hess. What are you doing? But think for a second. Maybe it's a critic of Christianity. Somebody whose entire career and life is spent on trying to criticize Christians. Maybe it's a politician who you believe that their party or platform or ideas are completely antithetical to orthodox biblical Christianity, to the gospel. And you'd say, I'd rather not pray for them. Maybe it's somebody who has done unspeakable personal harm to you. And, I, and you think, I'd rather not pray for them. Or if I do pray, I'm praying judgment on them. Now to add just a bit of nuance to this idea, sometimes Christians who have endured tremendous hurt, pain, or even dealing with leaders or others in the world who are doing tremendous harm to the Christian faith, sometimes we can skip too quickly through the pain of those realities. And we can think, you know, just get over it. If you've suffered from heinous sin or hurtful abuse, well, there's a process of, of dealing and wrestling with that pain, of course. And that doesn't mean when we pray for others, pray for those who persecute you. It doesn't mean that there's not a place for earthly consequences or even eternal consequences if that person remains in unrepentant sin. But still, is there anyone beyond the scope of the dignity of our prayer. So far in our Foundations of a Healthy Church series, in 1 Timothy, we've spent time already talking about the nature of sound doctrine. That the truth of what the church confesses must be biblical in nature. It must be the whole counsel of God. It must be a sound doctrine that coincides with Scripture, that does not contradict it, that neither takes away nor adds to what Scripture gives us. We must 
proclaim and teach and hold to a sound doctrine as a healthy church. And then last week we spent time talking about the, the doctrine of doctrines. The, the primary truth that the Bible portrays is the gospel of Jesus Christ that says that Jesus came and lived and died and rose again in the place of sinners so that all who have faith in Jesus to place their trust in him and turn away from their sin are given new life, forgiveness, and reconciled with the Lord. The church must be built on the priority of the gospel, that Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Central to a healthy church, central to our lives. And today, Paul now moves into kind of the heart of this letter, and he begins now with talking about the priority and the practice of prayer. Prayer must be a foundation of a healthy church. Corporate prayer in settings like this and also private prayer in our prayer closets, in our homes, in our quiet times, in our small groups and other gatherings. But the people of God, the church, must pray. And this morning's text shows to whom we direct our prayers, describes the content of those prayers, and also describes the outcome of those prayers. And not always to change our circumstances, but most often to change us. So if you would, please stand as I read from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Paul writes, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and, come, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God. There is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this reason I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is God's word. You may be seated. So as I said, this passage talks about the recipient, the content, and the outcome of our prayer. And our prayers this morning, or our main idea this morning about our prayers, is that we should take our prayers, take your prayers for all people to the one God. Take your prayers for all people to the one God. We'll notice again that these prayers, the, the centrality of, of who God is, of how we direct our prayers. We'll notice uh, what it means by praying for all people. And we'll see the outcome of these prayers, of how it transforms our lives into godliness and also to those on mission. And my hope through this text is that we would be people who recognize the need, necessity of praying and how we pray and how God transforms our hearts be people of godliness and a people of mission through our prayers. So three prayers to the one God. First, we pray that we pray for all that we may live at peace. Pray for all that we may live at peace. Verse one, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. 
Paul begins this section now with this first of all statement to kind of highlight the centrality of what he's saying, the importance of what he's saying, and the signal that he's kind of entering into the main body of the letter. Now you'll look in vain in the rest of 1 Timothy for a second of all. He doesn't quite write it in that kind of outline, but it's to highlight again the, the importance. He's calling attention to what he's saying in the, the main body now of this letter. Chapter 1 has been a, just a really good and long introduction so far to the heart of what he's saying here. Not to mitigate or to, to deny anything in chapter 1, but he's just entering into a new section. And he talks to, and urges and exhorts Timothy to offer various kinds of prayers for various kinds of people. He says supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. Now, it's not necessary for us to get bogged down into the differences of those prayers. Essentially, supplications are various requests. Intercessions are praying on behalf of somebody, interceding. They're taking those there. Prayers are just general concept for all prayers. And then thanksgivings are what they are. They're being thankful for those to whom, for whom we are praying. You know, when we pray for people, we pray a mix of prayers. We might pray for healing or provision, but we should also be praying for motivation, for resolve, for affection, for the kind of people that we are as we go through life and endure even sometimes difficult circumstances. But again, more noteworthy than the kinds of prayers is who we're praying for. Paul stresses all kinds of prayers should be prayed for all kinds of people, according to one commentator. And as you see that, we can, we can say, well, sure, I can pray for all people. So far, that sounds good. But then we go to verse 2. Pray for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions. Now again, think about it. The early church was mostly a group of servants, mostly poor people. You're told to pray for those who lead and rule over you, who make decisions, who have authority, for the wealthy and elite sometimes of society. Why would Paul go from this general prayer for all people to calling out specific prayers for these kinds of people? Well, a couple of reasons he does this. First, I think by highlighting the prayers for, for, uh, for those in high positions, for those who are kings, is that Paul is clarifying what he means when he says all in this context. See, this word all used several times. And I don't think Paul means pray for all, every individual person, like on the planet. I don't think he means the sum total or quantity of people. Most commentators say that he's referring to all kinds of people. So he says pray for all people, and then he says for kings and those in high positions. He's saying as you would pray for yourselves in potentially lowly positions... Pray for those kinds of people too. Pray for all kinds of people who would inhabit our society. We'll spend a little bit more time there in, the, in our second point. But essentially, Paul's saying that pray for rich and poor. Pray for powerful and needy. Pray for the Jew and the Gentile. Pray for them all. Again, we'll get there in a few moments. But the purpose of our praying for Kings and those in high positions have a, has a particular outcome. He, he, he calls out these specific prayers, these specific people, not just as an example, but to pray specific things or that there's an outcome of those prayers for those kings and those in authority. Now, depending on your political affiliations or who is in office and any, any number of roles, local, political, or local, state, federal, you might find it 
easier or harder to pray, depending on whether or not you agree with them, or depending on whether or not they received your vote. And you might think, you know, in an American context especially, where we have a lot more to say in those who lead us than the, than the history of the world. Realize, just in, like, the American idea is, is pretty new. 200 years in the history of the world is not all that long. And most people in society did not get to choose those who ruled over them. There was no vote. There was no process like that. And yet, people, believers throughout 2,000 years have been told to pray for those who lead. But we might hear this this morning and say, how can I pray for such a person who advocates for abortion? Why would I bother praying for someone who speaks so harshly towards everybody? But do you notice that the Bible does not qualify if we should pray for kings and those in authority. The Bible simply says, pray. The, the idea is that Christian people pray for those who lead them. Here at Grace, in our services, we typically pray for uh, people in political positions, those in authority around national holidays or elections, things going on maybe in our society that we just kind of highlight that on a corporate level. And we could probably be more systematic in how we handle those kinds of things and services as, a, as an example. But we also hope that we're praying in individual places as well on, uh, on particular issues and for particular people. But Andreas Kostenberger, a commentator here, says it well. He says, similar to Christians in the second half of the first century, believers today should take a positive action toward those in authority, such as engaging in intercessory prayer for them rather than taking an adversarial or antagonistic stance. Now what he means there by taking a positive action toward them is not to say that we agree with every single one of their policies and statements, but that we as Christians would be primarily known as people who pray rather than people who antagonize. Now, if you're put off by this idea in 21st century America, you might struggle a little bit in first century Roman Empire. Think for a moment who's receiving this letter. Timothy in the church of Ephesus, in the heart of the Roman Empire, in a, in a cosmopolitan city with lots of things that are going on, and with Nero as the emperor of Rome. Let me, let me give you a little uh, background on Nero. Well, first, remember the Roman Empire or emperor was, the, um, was, was considered a god. So to, to confess Jesus as Lord immediately put you at a challenge with, with the Roman governors. And, and, and then Nero himself, uh, likewise, it's likely that his mother had the previous emperor killed so that Nero could take over. Nero thanked her by killing her at some point, having her murdered. Along with his mother, Nero had his own wife killed so that he could marry another. He, he blamed the great fire of 64 on Christians, which led to widespread persecution among Christians, which ended the lives of the apostles Peter and Paul. Nero is known to have taken Christians, placed them on stakes, on poles, lit them aflame so that his garden parties had light. 
So I want you to imagine the worship planning service meeting that the church would have then and say, all right, guys, who's going to pray for Nero on Sunday? You realize in the 20th century alone, there have been more Christian martyrs in the 20th century than all previous centuries combined. Think about believers in China during the Cultural Revolution. Think about Christians during the rise of the Ottoman Empire in the 14th century. Think about confessional Christians who rejected Hitler in Germany. Think about Christians right now in the world. Global workers that we pray for and support that are in governments or in countries and nations where the government is seeking them out, listening to them, trying to send them out of the country. We're told to pray. But why should we pray? What's the outcome again of our prayer? That's part of what's highlighted here in this text. It's not just pray for them, just that they would do what we want. It's pray for them that we might be a kind of people. Look at verse 2 again. Pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Do you notice that the prayer for those who lead us is meant to transform us into be the kind of people who would be described as peaceful and quiet, godly and dignified. That we are meant to live tranquil, untroubled lives. Well, what, what does that entail? Well, the prayer for political leaders who make decisions and enact laws, we're praying that they would enact a, a, a situation, that they would lead in such a way that would create peaceful conditions for the sake of the gospel. That, that, that there would be a situation, that there would be an environment, that there would be a political realm that would allow the gospel and for healthy churches to flourish near and far. As believers were person. Now, again, remember, this is important for us to say, peace in our society is not a prerequisite for church health and gospel growth. God does not owe us a just society in a peaceful place and freedom of religion for the sake of gospel outreach. The church has flourished without those laws. Persecution and acts. The, the church was persecuted after Stephen's death. And guess what? They went about heralding the gospel and people got saved. But just because the Lord can still use persecution in difficult circumstances of which he may use in our own country doesn't mean we should not pray for, for a culture, for, for just laws in society, for the church to flourish as well. We see this indicated in Acts as well. In Acts chapter 9, uh, eventually there was the, the persecution subsided, and it said that the church then had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord, this is Acts 9, 31, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. See, the church can multiply in persecution and in peace. The, the Lord can use whatever circumstances. And here in 1 Timothy 2, we're told to pray for peace so that the church can flourish. We get a, a glimpse of what Paul is mentioning here when we think about gospel ambition, when we think about the priority of the gospel and its outreach being foremost on our minds. 
When we pray and we ask for the Lord to move in our society, ultimately we're praying as, as part of our prayer, we should have as part of our prayer, Lord, whatever the circumstances, in light of whoever leads us, we pray that the gospel would flourish. Could it be, however God sovereignly moves in our society, could be for that very end? Can that fuel our prayers as well? Another way we see this working out in our own modern society is in, uh, if you follow, read missionary letters, read missionary emails. If you're on, if you're on a, a global worker's email list, make sure you open those up, read those, and pray for them. It's actually a sad statistic on the number of missionaries who send missionary support letters and they, because of how they send them, they can actually track the number of people who open those letters. And it's a, it's a pretty low percentage of people who actually open those letters. So friends, open those letters and pray for people who are in difficult circumstances. Just this week, a former classmate of mine got, a, got an email from him and he was describing, he's trying to uh, pastor a church in a closed country. And the government has made it extremely difficult for them to remain in this place. And, and so their, their family has been back and forth in this country at least two or three times just in the last 12 months. A costly thing, difficult on their family. So part of as we pray for them, we're praying that in that country, that Lord, would you allow for the just society and laws to be able to allow believers to move there? Notice that prayer? Would you pray, would you allow those leaders to create a society of where the church can live at dignity? Peace. We heard from Dr. Dumape last week. Did you notice when he's talking about pray, how, do, how do we pray for their country? And he's praying, pray that civil war would not happen. But friends, as we pray for those who lead us, may it lead us to peaceful, quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. Notice what it says in verse 3. This pleases God. This is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Friends, in the way we talk about politics, in the way we talk about those who lead us, is our primary concern to please God in what we say and how we pray. In 2024, in an election year, will your social media account and your conversations and your small groups and your conversation over coffee here and the way you talk about things at family gatherings Will you be known for godliness, dignity, love, prayer, or complaint? See, friends, as the church of Jesus Christ, we're able to offer our prayers for all people so that we might live a peaceful life, that we might please the Lord in our godliness and our Dignity. We pray for all that we might live at peace. But Paul's prayer here isn't just for our peace. It's not about just pleasing the Lord. It's also for God's mission. As Paul goes on in this prayer, we'll notice it's that we pray for all that we may live at peace. But we also, secondly, pray for all that they may be saved. We pray for all that they may be saved. Look at verse 3 again. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So still in the context of Paul urging prayer among God's people are these theological statements about Jesus in verses 4 through 6. 
The prayer for all people leads to our godliness and dignity, but it also leads us to be a people on mission who care about the salvation of all people. Now, verse 4 can cause lots of questions. God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Maybe even as I read it this morning, you're kind of going, what's he going to do with that one? Well, some people have tried to answer this in several different ways. One of those, a heretical view, is the idea of universal salvation. God desires all people to be saved, therefore, they're all going to be saved in some time. But the, the, host, the, the rest of the Bible spends so much time talking about the only way to salvation is through faith in Jesus and repentance of sin. This universal salvation is not the indication of what Paul means here. Others try to explain this verse by putting the emphasis on human freedom and an ability to potentially reject God's sovereignty and will. The logic goes, God wills, wills every single person to salvation, again, every single individual, and he gives them the free will to decide whether or not they want to, so they can reject it. The logic emphasizes, at one level, the, the necessity of a human response to the gospel, the need of faith and repentance. But the logic undermines so much about God's sovereignty over the human heart through passages like Ephesians 1 through 3, Romans 9, 2 Corinthians 4, Titus 3, and any host of other number of passages that say no one can resist the will of God. A more accurate way, as opposed to those two first views, is to talk about how the Bible presents God's will in two different senses. In one sense, you have God's will as his divine desire, his, his moral will, his revealed will that we see all throughout the Bible. He wills that we should not hate, that we should not commit sexual immorality, that we should not murder, that we should believe in Jesus as part of his will. But the other sense is his providential will of all that comes to pass. And in his providential will, not everything in his moral will actually takes shape. People sin. People reject his re re revealed will. But none of that takes place outside of God's providence and his leading and work in the world. That in introduces a host of questions I understand. But we would rather a sovereign God over all things instead of a kind of sovereign God in some things. But still in the emphasis of this passage, is it's, it is about God's will. But it's a will of, I believe, what we talked about all earlier... Not just all individual people, but all kinds of people that are different from one another. So when God desires all people to be saved, he desires all kinds of people to be saved. All kinds of salvation. The, this includes people in high positions and low positions. This includes men and women. This includes Jew and Gentile. This includes slave and free. All kinds are included as part of God's offer of salvation because all kinds are included and they all need to hear the one gospel because there's only one mediator. This is what leads us then to this theological statement of verse 5. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony at the proper time. Essentially, there is only one gospel. There is only one way to be saved. There is only one Christ. There is only one ransom that's given for all kinds of people. And that one message needs to go to them all. Do you notice the play on words here? All people, one God. All people, one mediator. All people, one ransom. Think about what that word ransom means. Ransom, to buy back, to purchase back. 
If you were to go home today and in your mailbox there was a ransom note, we have your family. This is what you need to pay. What would you give? What, what in your bank account would you say, you know, that's worthy of my wife? What in your 401k is worthy of your kid? See, for most of us, there's not a price we wouldn't pay to get the one we love the most. And what's so great about that one mediator is that in his life and death, he paid the debt of our ransom to purchase us back. And how good that is, friends, that he did that for all kinds of people. Last week we talked about being the chief of sinners. Being the chief of sinners is where we need to start. To realize that all of us are in our lowly state. And you may feel as if, yes, I am the chief of sinners. I do not deserve to be bought back. And at one level, that's right. And yet still Christ ransomed you. You may feel that you come from a people or a family of no, of no fame, of no royalty, of not worth it. But Christ came to ransom all kinds of people. You may feel like you're part of an ethnic group that feels maligned, pushed aside, uh, forgotten. The cards are stacked against. And that ransom was for you, friend, if you turn in faith and repentance too. Christ came for all kinds of people. This is true all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis 12, in the call of Abraham, when he says, when he calls Abram, apart from anything good foreseen in Abram, no, no foreseen faith, no conditions there, he simply called. And he said in Genesis 12 verse 1, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families. God was making provisions for a salvation that would come to all families of the earth back in Genesis 12. And then in Galatians 3, he dem demonstrates of how that promise is fulfilled. Listen here, Galatians 3, verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations will be blessed. See, friends, God's provision to bless all families of the earth, the only way that can come is through the one mediator who gave his life as a ransom for all kinds of people, all the families of the earth, so that we might all enjoy fellowship with him and with one another. All nations. Think of how great, in that context now, the Great Commission is to say, go and make disciples of all nations, all the ethne, all the peoples. Go tell them, all kinds of people, about the gospel. Think about what we've already sung and confessed this morning from Psalm 67. Let the nations praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. That the nations may sing for joy. See, friends, the church of Jesus Christ is meant to be a people who pray for all people and meant to be a people who gather with all people because we've been unified in Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the unity of all kinds of people because the gospel tells us of our sinful predicament. 
The gospel tells us that we are all the chief of sinners. And there's no one people group, there's no one person who's more of a chief of sinner. We're all chief of sinners. All of us. And if we applied that message alone, it transformed our marriage, it would transform our friendships, it transformed our church. If we all said, yes, I'm the worst. But when we can say that, but we can also say, but there's only one mediator. There's one remedy. There's one Christ. There's one gospel for all kinds. This sinner isn't saved by a different gospel. That sinner's not saved by a different gospel. We're all saved through the finished work of Christ and his ransom on the cross to purchase us back, to have new life in him, to unite us to him. And if we're united to him, we're united to one another. That's the church. Every suggestion, every theory, every principle that our society has to try to unite people apart from the gospel will fail. But we as the church who have the hope of Christ should be those who model what unity looks like across differences, across diversity, because we're united to Christ. This is what transformed the early church. Think about this in the early church. You're a Jew right? Okay, you've grown up a Jew. And let's just say at 20, you trust Christ. You believe in him. He's the Messiah. He died in your place. You've repented of your sins. You place your faith in Jesus alone. All right, I'm a Christian now. But your whole life, my whole life, I've heard that Gentiles are dirty, wicked, rotten people. But I see now throughout the book of Acts that, man, these these Gentiles are responding to the same gospel message that I responded to. They're placing their faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation too. They're receiving the same Holy Spirit that I received as well. And now I'm supposed to gather with them in the same local church? We're described as now part of the family of God. We're supposed to take the Lord's Supper together. We dine around a love feast. We're supposed to wash their feet. Are you kidding me? But see, the gospel of Jesus unites the worst of enemies. The gospel of Jesus unites people from all kinds of backgrounds. In Ephesians chapter 2, after Paul rehearses this wonderful uh, gospel doctrine, this, go- this gospel of grace, this gracious, wonderful thing to tell us that we are dead in our sins and trespasses, but we are made alive through faith in Jesus, and by grace we are saved through faith. And then he gets into the second half of chapter 2, and he says, and this is true for All y'all, everybody, Jews and Gentiles. And now that wall of hostility, that wall of separation, the wall that has told you for your entire life that things are separate, that wall has now had the wrecking ball of the gospel go through it so that we're now united to one another in the local church. Brothers and sisters, this is why a gospel of grace should create a people of grace. If we are grace only in our name and our theology, we have not really understood grace. But if we are grace in our name, in our theology, and then in our lives and culture, now we've really understood it. Because we say to all kinds of people, we have the same sinful predicament. I'll fight you to see who's the chief of sinners. And it's me. But then we're saved by the same gospel that unites us to one another and unites us to Christ. We pray for all that they may be saved. See, if we can't pray for the salvation of all people, even our enemies, and this is hard, if we can't pray for the salvation of all kinds of people, then what we're saying is that we would rather that person go to hell 
and go to heaven. But when we can pray for all, that's when we've understood grace. We're praying that God would change a heart. We're praying that God would turn in people to repentance. When we're applying what Jesus says that my house is a house of prayer for all the nations. We can pray for all that they may be saved. Paul's final point, he includes one last verse in this section as a personal note. But that personal note leads us to application now as well. We pray for all that we may live at peace. We pray for all that they may be saved. And finally, we pray for all that we may go and tell. That we may go and tell. Verse 7, Paul writes, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. Teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. It's really briefly to go through this passage What's unique about verse 7 is that it's the connection, it's the outflow of verses 4 through 6. That the prayers for all people lead us to remind ourselves that there's only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And then that truth, that there's only one mediator, leads Paul and leads us to go and tell that message to everybody. The theological statements about one mediator of Christ being the only way is what leads God's people to be on mission until he returns. So Paul can say with a preposition for in verse 7, for this reason, for since there is only one mediator between God and man, we then, I then must go and tell that to all kinds of people. We must go tell everybody that there's only one way to have salvation from your sins. This isn't a Western concept. This is a truth God concept. That, that you are, your sins have separated you from a holy God. And the only remedy of that sin is to place your faith in the finished work of Christ who died for you, rose for you, and is coming again. And you can have everlasting life with him. That's the one message we proclaim to all people. Paul says he's been appointed as a preacher or a herald of this message. He's an apostle to the Gentiles. That is the nations, the ethne. He's going to them. He says, I'm telling the truth. I am not lying to to indicate the seriousness of his message. To contrast that with the false teachers that are earlier in chapter 1, he says, I'm telling the truth. This is real. It's authentic stuff. He uses a similar phrase in Romans 9, verse 1, to talk about the weighty things of God's sovereignty and salvation there. But friends, can we with Paul say... We can go and tell because there's only one way of salvation. That's why a healthy church doesn't just pray for all peoples, but goes to all peoples. A healthy church sends its best and brightest to the neediest places of our, of our world and of our city because there's great need of the gospel in those places. We believe that there's only one way to salvation. Therefore, we go to the most desperate, needy places to declare and herald that salvation the neighborhoods, and the nations. Who among us will go to the most needy places of our city to plant a healthy church, to see the gospel flourish in that place? Who among us will declare Christ to our neighbors and friends and co-workers because God has placed us there that we might describe and tell them of the gospel? Who among us will go to the nations of some 3.4 billion people on the planet who currently have no access or little access to the gospel. People who will live and die in their entire lives having never heard the name of Jesus Christ. Who will go to the Urdu and Hindi people of India 
who will go to the lost people of Japan, some 120 million unreached people. Who among us will say, Lord, here's my life. This is everything. You got it. I believe there's only one God and one mediator between God and man. I'm going to spend my life for that priority, for that sake, for that kind of ambition to say, this is it. Take it. We pray for all that we may go and tell. Are our prayers filled with those kind of priorities? Are our prayers fueled with a passion to see lost people respond to Jesus and healthy churches established for the glory of God and for the worship of God until he returns? Is that our heart? Last week we heard from Dr. Gumape. He's president of the seminary there in in Bangui, Central African Republic, and the facility there is called the, the James Dribble Leadership Training Center. James Dribble was a, a missionary from our fellowship over 100 years ago who went to Central Africa. He went there, and he, as he was going, he said this, wrote this in his journal, I think. He said, I long to go to the darkest and most densely populated region, to a place where not only has the gospel never been preached, but no one else has plans to preach it. from his ministry, some 3,000 churches exist 100 years later. Friends, will we pray for those, for all kinds of people in our society so that the gospel would flourish in our day and that we might be people who model a godly life, dignified, holy, reverent, worshipful, loving, and that we might be those who pray also so that the gospel may go forward through our mouths and through our church. We pray for all to the one God. Let's pray. God, we come before you now knowing that you are the one to whom and the only one to whom we direct our prayers. There is no other mediator, Lord. There is no other priest. There is no one else. There is no name given among men under heaven, of which we can be saved. There's no other substitution. There is no other sacrifice. There is no other Savior but Christ alone. God, would you fill us with such great joy in you, the one God. Would our prayers, Lord, would, would fill your ears as a sweet aroma, and would you transform our hearts and society so that the gospel flourishes? Lord, may you be honored in our lives. And may the gospel be always on our lips. And may we be those who communicate that to the world around us and to you alone. In Christ's name, amen.